Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I really wanted love and I was willing to do whatever it took to get that and to be in a relationship where they weren't going to leave me, but it would definitely break me because I would then be so afraid to leave because then the emotional conditioning was you're worthless, you're broken, you're never going to find anyone. I remember even in my therapist's office, just full hysterics and saying, but I I don't know what else to do. And I remember, you know, him saying, wow, Nita, just look at where you have come and you can create a whole new life for yourself. And I would still make excuses because I was in the suck. I was fully in it. And that's where I have so much empathy for women who feel like they're stuck in it. And I think that's where it comes. There's that rock bottom. And I definitely... That was the rock bottom because my life was threatened. I mean, you know, he threatened to end my life. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Light Watkins show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified with as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And this week, I'm in conversation with someone who has one of the most inspiring stories about resilience. Her name is Dr. Nita Bushin. Dr. Nita is a mother. She's a wife. She's an entrepreneur and a performance coach to thousands. She's also a podcaster as well as an author of the recently released book, That Sucked, Now What?, which is a real talk guide to help you normalize the messy, chaotic, and sometimes crappy human moments that we all face on this beautiful journey called life. And in this conversation, Dr. Nita and I discuss her own messy and chaotic backstory where she lost her mom and her dad to cancer and her brother to an asthma attack all before the age of 19. A few years later, she's got all of the markers of success. She's an entrepreneur. She's married. She lives in a fancy house. She drives a fancy car. But she found herself in a years-long physically abusive marriage. And after seeing the file listing all of the incidents of abuse, even the judge asked her why she waited so long to get out of that marriage. And that was her rock bottom moment. And so she got herself out. She traveled the world. And then several leaps of faith and a lot of inner work later, Nita started a new life with a new loving husband. She became a mom and she switched careers to help entrepreneurs find their purpose. 
In other words, she turned her mess into her message. And this is really the opportunity for all of us not to be ashamed of what we've been through in life, but to use that to show others what is possible. And sometimes even just to show ourselves what's possible. So this was a really powerful conversation. I'm super excited for you to hear it. And without further ado, I want to introduce you to Dr. Nita Bhushan. Dr. Nita, you're still keeping the doctor in your name, huh? You know, it's... I saw many podcasts that Dr. Nita guest Dr. Nita, but you're not really, you're not practicing anymore. I'm not. And it's interesting. Some people like my, my publicist is like, keep it in there. And, uh, you oh, know, for credibility and social proof and all that. Yeah. And I feel like when I haven't shared it, then when I do share, they're kind of like, oh, wow, why didn't you leave with that? And so it's been very interesting. And then some people just assume that it's like doctor of emotional resilience. Or <laughs> they don't know you were a cosmetic dentist. <laughs> if there if there ever was a thing and I'm like, sure. Yeah. But yeah, cosmetic dentist, yeah. we are. <laughs> and I, I cool. kind of alluded so to, you know, the, the four years that I did do my homage in, in dental school. So you were called beta as a child? I saw you made a reference to beta. Yeah. So it's actually called beta. 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 There you go. There you go. Uh, beta. Beta. Yeah. And Hindi means little one. Beautiful. Okay. So your dad is Hindi. Your mom is Filipino. You grew up in Chicago. When you were a beta, uh, <laughs> what, were some of your, what were some of your earlier memories of like activities or toys or what did you, what were you getting into? What did you really enjoy? Growing up Filipino Indian, you you know, you're kind of like forced to do a lot of the traditional things. So dance was a big part of our life for sure. So it was Indian classical dancing and it was also Filipino classical dancing. If you've ever been to, I don't know, in the Philippines, you know, they do the stick dance where you're dancing in between two sticks and it goes fast. You know, I never became a break dancer when I was in high school, but a lot of our friends did because they were able to like dance between the sticks and that's what you did. Hawaiian dancing was another big one that Filipinos throw their, toss their kids in. So yeah, it was like a little, I wouldn't say my mom was a dance mom, but we were, we were definitely shuttled in performances and piano was a big part of that. It was busy growing up. Definitely. When did Mario Kart come into the picture? <laughs> oh, Mario Kart was a little older. <laughs> yeah. First, it was Mario Brothers, like uh-huh. Luigi. Yes, Nintendo. Shout out to Back in the Day and then Sonic. Shout out to Back in the Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then Sonic. I think I was a little too young for Atari, but yeah, it was definitely for me, Nintendo. And then Nintendo 64. So then Mario Kart came a little bit. A little bit later, I think when my youngest brother came into the mix, but Mario Kart was uh, definitely one of those games that I loved. Your parents are immigrants, right? So what was the immigrant philosophy as young kids growing up in your household? And I know, again, you mentioned in your book that there wasn't a lot of vulnerability expressed. You didn't show emotion. So what was some of the messaging you still remember from both your parents being around? Yeah, I think I only got validated around that time from my dad when I came back winning awards, for sure. 
And it was something that he could brag about to his friends, right? Nita won, you know, X whatever prize or first place in this. Vinay won this, you know, first place in this. DJ won this or or their dance troupe won this. You know, it was a very proud and legacy building and success was a big thing. You know, all of achievements, achievements were huge. Yeah. It was so huge. Luckily I didn't really participate in the spelling bee, but that's very stereotypical for (laughs) Filipino Indian family, especially Indian part, part, but the sentiments growing up was study hard and no matter what, like, you know, there's a bully. I remember being in the fifth grade and I came home crying. It was like the fifth or the sixth grade. And I came home crying because I was, you know, there was, and I grew up in the city of Chicago, like, like it's, it was a magnet school, but it's still, it was like full on city. And I just remember there were times where you feel unsafe and yeah, like I was getting threatened to get beat up. And if somebody's boyfriend was curious about you or something like that, we were just so racially ambiguous because my parents were immigrants. So most of the time, nobody could tell or put us in the box of, you know, are you Asian or Spanish or whatever, half and half. So it was, you know, you got a lot of that kind of attention, which also was very prime for bullying, at least in my experience. And yeah, I remember coming home crying to my parents and my my dad just like, so what? Study. <laughs> that was it. It's like, okay, <laughs> study, study hard. <laughs> Maybe they won't bully you if you, you're like the top of the class. And, and so he didn't understand that at all. And, you know, my mom, she definitely worked a lot. So I didn't really get to see her as much. My dad was definitely one that was home with us because his office was very close to our house. And so he usually did the afternoon evening routine with us. And so he was kind of like that emotional support, but it was very tough love. What was your impression of their union, your mom and your dad, when you were a kid? They seemed like they were in love. They were in love. I mean, it was definitely a love marriage for sure. Mm -hmm. My dad and coming from a very different background than my mom, you know, Filipinos, they're usually matriarchs. They're usually the ones that are very strong and sometimes lean into the masculine more because they're, you know, holding up a household, they're doing a lot. And that's just in the diaspora, that's in the culture. And for Indians, they're very much a patriarchal society. And so there's definitely some disagreements there for sure. I know that they had a loving relationship, but the cultural nuances, the differences, the fact that they both were, you know, very, my mom was very strong in her religion. She was Catholic and my dad was very spiritual. Like he grew up in India during a time where the partition happened five years after he was born. And so they really loved spirituality more than anything else. I think that he grew up going to the Mandir, the Hindu temple and the Gurdwara, the Sikh temple, because he was born in Punjab. And yeah, so he just had a very different way of tuning back into himself. But that was one of the initial places where I would learn, you know, about spirituality was literally through him. Was there like a little altar set up in your living room? Oh, yeah. We had an altar set up, actually. It's, well, it's interesting because if you've ever watched the movie Coco, and Coco's very, you know, Catholic, but it's a Pixar movie about how they celebrate the Day of the Dead and Dia de los, mm-hmm. de los Muertos and, you know, how they have the altar set up for all of the family members that have passed away. 
well, we had two altars, <laughs> one for like my Filipino side and my mom had like, you know, my great grandfather and, you know, all of the ancestors there. So it very much is so similar to that movie. And then you would every year around the Day of the Dead or All Saints Day, the Catholic holiday, you know, you would kind of like put offerings and food, but then you would go into the master bedroom of my parents and there was like a huge altar, like a puja altar where my dad would have his mala beads and then he'd have his agarbati, the incense sticks and all of the deities like Ganesha and Krishna. And, you know, he was a big Hare Krishna guy just because in Chicago, that was like the only temple back in the eighties. And that's where they got married. It was like five minutes from our house, but that's kind of where, you know, we grew up chanting Hare Krishna and yeah, that was a big part, but he Mm -hmm. was a very big advocate of, you know, you can go to all of these different houses of worship, but make sure you just have your own. And even as I've gotten older, and especially through some of my dark times, I definitely would carry like a tiny little altar with me, whether it was a deity, whether it was a representation and, you know, a rock. Now I've got all kinds of different tools, but even like the earlier days, I definitely had something to ground me for sure. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. When you were a kid, do you remember feeling like that was a special thing that your family experienced that other families didn't? Or were you like embarrassed if anybody found out that there were all these altars in your house that your dad used to? chant to or whatever. What was your relationship with that, with your friends? No, I was, again, I grew up in the city of Chicago. Like all of my friends were either black or Spanish. There were, I was like the, the oddball mixed Indian kid. And it wasn't cool to be Indian back then. And I think you kind of just want to belong at that time for sure. That's all you want to do is to fit in. And I think, yeah, there was a lot of denying of what I was. There was a lot of denying of the practices because 
we didn't have that much of a Filipino or Indian community until we got into kind of like dancing and the dance community, which was very cultural, but it's almost like you had two identities from even within friend circles where, okay, you're not Filipino enough. Like you don't sing, you don't do karaoke because I didn't. And that's like a Filipino joke because every single Filipino person is like an <laughs> entertainer, not our family. So there was that. But then there was also, you know, the Indian side where you weren't Indian enough. And so it felt really interesting growing up in that mix. And I feel like no one's, you know, really asked me that. So thank you. That's a very great question. And and that definitely played a role as to in my childhood what I was wanting to share because we would do all of these really interesting, cool celebrations. Diwali was definitely not, you know, like they're like, wait, why are you celebrating Christmas in October? What's that? You know, so it was, it was, uh, Mm -hmm. and now of course it's like celebrated in all the ways. Yeah. That wasn't, it wasn't like that back then. When you were 10 years old, your mom was diagnosed with cancer. How did she find out she had cancer or what were the symptoms that that led her to go get the diagnosis? So here's what I do remember from that time in my life, because during that time, it was so chaotic. And I just remember my mom finding a lump in her breast and like, I think Mm -hmm. she was in the shower and they just went and it was like a routine, well, not a routine checkup because at this point, you know, she had found something and then they kind of confirmed that it was breast cancer. And I remember vividly that, and I mean, this is etched in my memory forever, but I remember being 10 and I remember she was going in for her like biopsy or her, like the surgery, the mastectomy. And I remember being with my great grandmother, my Lola, and I had the chicken pox, so I couldn't go with them. And I remember having the chicken pox in my room and I'm like, everyone left, like no one's at the house because my mom was going through this big surgery. And I guess my brothers didn't have chicken pox at the time, but I did. And no one told me anything about having the chicken pox. I'm like, why am I itching everywhere? And my poor great grandmother, like she only spoke a little bit of English. She only spoke Tagalog. And I'm like crying to her and telling her like, I don't even know what to do. I'm itching everywhere. And all she does is she gives me a bottle of calamine lotion, you know, that pink stuff. And and she's like, you know, rub this on because I think she was probably afraid of getting it. I don't know. But I just remember being so alone in my room and even like crying, thinking like, how could they abandon me? And I literally like felt that that's kind of where that you know, abandonment wound started to come through. It was etched around that time for sure. It was such a pivotal moment. And then when everybody came back, I was like, where did everybody go? And then that's when they said, yeah, you know, your mom has breast cancer and and they've removed, you know, the tumor. I didn't really understand what that meant, but that would be the journey. It would be the journey of me stepping into a role of then caretaking. Well, also a couple of years later, with your mom having survived initially, you're out at the mall with your dad and you have a request. (laughs) And this leads to you having your first entrepreneurial adventure. So can you just share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, It was limited to 12 years old. And that would have put me in like sixth grade or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I remember at this point, my mom was in remission between when I was 12 and, and 14. And 
And I remember going to the mall because that's what you did. It was Water Tower Mall. Limited to was the store. And I passed through. You, you, Yeah, I feel like we grew up the same time. And I passed through that mall and I was like glittery blue jeans. And it was the jeans that had, you know, like the rip on them, but it was like glitter all the way through. And I'm like, oh my God, I need to have these jeans. And I'm like, pa, you know, can we do this? Like, can I, can I get these? I, I promise I won't ask for anything again. And he's like, no. <laughs> no, you can't. And it was like a flat out no. And I was so bummed because I'm like, it would make me the coolest girl in the sixth grade. Can I just have it? And he's like, when you grow up and you make your own money, you can buy your own clothes. But right now you have so many clothes. And I just remember I I felt so defeated and I felt like, oh gosh, you know, like, like he's not listening to me. Like this is so important. And so I remember going home and going in my room and I was determined because I wanted those blue jeans and I wanted those blue jeans so bad. And so I started, I took my, you know, my journal shout out to like the journals that had like the little locket and key back in the day. (laughs) And well, I don't know if you kept a journal, but I sure did. And so I started writing all the ways and I'm like, like, okay, make my own money. Pa says that I have to make my own money. So I said, all right, well, how can I do this? Well, that kind of wrote out how much it would cost. And I don't know, I think the jeans back then were like 25 bucks or something like that. But I remember it was like a lot of money for me. And so I looked at my like piggy bank and like, you know, you only have a few quarters in there. I mean, it's not enough. And so I started to write down, okay, I can bake goods and I can sell it because we lived in a high rise. We lived in a building. I can sell it to the women, the elderly people in my building, and they'll they'll probably buy stuff. And then I kind of wrote out like, okay, watch my neighbor's cat because there was somebody on our floor that had a cat. And so I just started writing all these things. And then I looked at my closet and I see, you know, of course, I wasn't the, the tidiest person back then. And I see clothes on the floor and he said, and I, and I kind of just remember like, okay, Pa said I have too many clothes. And so I look and I'm like, Ooh, okay. Sell my clothes. And so I literally, it was like the light bulb moment for me that I'm like, it was almost like, I'll show you, Pa, you know? So I removed some of the clothes that I was like, okay, this person I think would really like this, this person I think would like this. And so I literally put the clothes in my backpack. The next day I got to school and I passed notes and I think it was like math class, but I said, can you meet me in the bathroom during lunchtime? I'm having a garage sale and maybe you might want to get some of these. I'm, I'm getting rid of these clothes. And so then a few of my friends, we were all, you know, into fashion because we were very like girly girls. And so I start giving my friends, I'm like, try this on. And so lo and behold, I sold two pieces of my clothing that day and it was five bucks each. So I came home with $10 and I was really, really proud of those $10. And I showed my dad and I said, Paul, well, you told me that when I get my own money, I can buy my own clothes. And so I showed him the $10 that I got. And he's like, Bitta, how did you get that? And I'm like, he's like, who gave you that? And I said, well, my friends. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you told me I had too many clothes. So I sold them. And the look on his face, I know he was like proud, but he was also like, why would they buy your clothes? <laughs> so, <laughs> Like your used clothes. So it was like, you know, personal shopping invented before personal shopping became a thing. For those listening, did I actually become, you know, like part of that being my journey? No, it was actually one of the few things that I tried when 
when I really wanted what I wanted. And I ended up getting those blue jeans and boy, did it feel good to put those blue jeans on. Well, it changes your orientation too. I think as a person, as a young person, because now you've monetized everything in your room. You're like, wait a minute, what else, what else can I sell? What else can I sell? How much is this worth? <laughs> <laughs> was your mom back to her normal routine or did her initial cancer scare shift her whole life? And now she was, I don't know, spending more time at home or what's yeah. going on there? Oh, these are such great questions, love. She actually, it didn't stop her. It didn't stop her. It was, it was one of those things where when she was in remission, you know, and I think back then there wasn't as much support for, you know, breast cancer as there is now. And I think that, no, she wasn't part of a support group. She wasn't, she was still working quite a bit. And I think that we were going through some financial troubles as a family too, because when she got sick, you know, I just remember there was a time where things were chaotic. And I think, you know, my mom had to get another job to support the family because insurance stuff went out. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big advocate, right? For emotional and mental health, because yeah, she just kind of went back to her ways of doing things. And I think that definitely caused a big ruckus between my dad and her. Cause I think my dad really wanted her to just not be the same way that she was before. And so it caught up with her because yeah, that cancer came back. So around 15, 16, before you start to experience this string of losses, what was your idea of success? Like, what did you want to be when you quotes grew up? I think at 15, I you know, I, I didn't even know what I wanted to be. I knew I loved dancing and I loved gathering people. I was definitely a gatherer from a very young age, for sure. And I think maybe that's part of my dharma in many ways. Had you been indoctrinated in your dad's idea, like you have to achieve and then just keep achieving for the rest of your life? Or did you kind of, were you a little skeptical and think, well, I don't know, maybe I'll try some um, other things. I'll get through yeah. this while I'm at home, but then... You, you know, it was, it was still that, that part was definitely ingrained. Like, okay, I'm not going to come mm-hmm. home with less than an A. I'm going to strive for success. I'm going to do all the after school activities. I remember picking up a job when I was 15 years old. I don't talk about this in the book, but my first job was working for a dentist, Dr. Horrible. You, you'd like this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Dr. Horrible, that's his name. Yeah, that was his it's H-O-R-B-A-L, and that's how he pronounced it. I was like, yo, you could just pronounce it horrible. Like, you know, who would ever out. go see Dr. Horrible before <laughs> the dentist? I'm telling it's you, not enough going to the dentist. <laughs> I'm telling you, he called himself Dr. Horrible. And and it was me at 15. That was my one of my first jobs. And I would work for him on Saturdays. I know it's really funny. It's just so comedic. And he was this Polish guy and he really took me under his wing. He had no, I don't know how and why he decided to have a 15 year old work at his office, but I was the one answering his phones and, 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 you know, scheduling people for their mm-hmm. appointments. But I remember that was literally one of the things that would for sure change my life because when there was so much of this chaos going on at home, you know, with my mom sick, with their financial troubles, 
I knew that I'm like, okay, I can do something. And that meant, oh, I can, I can actually entertain these people that don't want to get a root canal on a Saturday morning. And most of the people coming in, they were elderly. So they like, you know, it was like a lot of grandma, grandpa energy. And they loved me because I was so young. Probably like, what the heck is this young teenage girl doing in this office? And I just remember I felt so cool not having to work, you know, at like Kmart back in the day, because that's the other thing that people would do for my age. And so, yeah, I just felt really professional and that I was actually doing something knowing that some of the people were coming in and they definitely did not want to see Dr. Horrible. And so that would cultivate my sense of of empathy and compassion, but also knowing that I could leave whatever was going on in my internal world and I could focus on helping somebody else out. Give us a little montage of what happens next from 16 to 19. So that would be the toughest years of my life. So my mom, when she came out of the remission and was diagnosed again, when the cancer came back, it actually spread everywhere, spread to her lungs, spread to her brain. And I would say the last year of her life, it was pretty bad. She was in a ventilator. And she was in the ICU. I mean, it was, things got pretty, pretty dark. And she lost that battle when I was 16. And then a year later, my brother, DJ, he would be coming home. He went to a rival school for me in Chicago and he would be coming home from the homecoming game. And we were, we were going to meet that day. It was literally almost a year that my mom passed on my youngest brother's birthday. And his inhaler, he had an asthma attack and his inhaler wasn't working that day. And so they could not revive him in the ambulance. They had to rush him to the hospital and he literally had his lungs collapsed over his heart and gave out and he died immediately. So that was a huge shock, a huge trauma to just our entire family. I mean, it sent my my dad into full, you know, the heaviness and the and the depths and the horrific despair of grief and sorrow and loss and I think people in our community just didn't even know how to support. And of course, you're just at a loss for words. You're kind of like, "Wait. When you go through sudden death versus somebody that you know is like diagnosed for something. I mean, they're both really painful, but the latter is even more shocking because you were just not ever anticipating that, especially because he was healthy. He was uh, like, he was my mm-hmm. best friend, you know? So that was DJ. And then two years after that, my dad and I, when we were trying to, we were starting to come out of this like bubble of grief. And you're, when you're in that tunnel of grief, you're kind of like, oh shit, is this ever going to end? And you have this constant PTSD if you like, you know, the the phone rings and and you're you're picking it up and you're like, oh God, is this gonna be like a terrible phone call? So my nervous system was definitely in survival mode during that time. But I remember and two years later, after that, my dad was diagnosed with stage four, you know, lung cancer. It's interesting how you guys found that out with by dyeing his hair for the yeah. wedding. Yeah, yeah. 
it was so wild because it was like the universe God source. Somebody was like, Hey, you probably want to enjoy the last year of life with your dad. You know, it was just so bizarre. We were getting out of this. We were going to, you know, a, a family wedding. Cause you know, that's what you do in, in Indian families. And this was the first wedding that we would actually show up with my dad and my brother Vinay and I, we said, okay, let's dye your hair black because he had like the silver fox hair. And we did, we got this box dye and we were so excited that we could do this like, you know, project together. And immediately as the dye touched his hair, he started getting this like, you know, anaphylactic shock, like full on his face started to swell up. And there we went again, like my nervous system was like, oh my God. I had to call 911. The ambulance came. I mean, it was just, it was just like a shit show. And so they rushed him to that same hospital, the same one that my mom was in and with the same doctors. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, we're going to run a bunch of these tests just to make sure he's okay. We're going to do these x-rays. It's just like, we're going to do a full body scan. And, you know, we're like, wait, over a dye, you know? So, and I didn't know I was 18 at this point. And so I said, okay, we're going to say yes to all these tests, but it came back with, uh, yeah, his, his chest x-ray came back with a inoperable tumor on his lung and he was in the best health and shape of his life. I mean, he smoked for 30 years, but I think, you know, after my mom got sick initially, he had stopped and he was just on the road to maximizing his health. He was jogging six miles a day. He was, you know, at AOL chat rooms, you know, chatting it up with women across the States. Like he was doing his thing and, and he was finally starting to see light again in his life. And so he just didn't believe the diagnosis. He had no symptoms. It was, he just, he felt completely fine. He felt fine. Totally. Okay. And he was literally on a mission in his own way to really battle these doctors and wanting to, you know, do these kinds of different therapies. Now, again, didn't know about full nutrition, didn't know about some of these other methods, Gerson technique, Gerson method, et cetera. Back then just didn't know, but mm -hmm. in his own way, I think he was doing the best that he could. And yeah. So through chemo, radiation, we did all the traditional stuff. And as they said, nine months later and, and nine months later, he went. So at 19, I'm now the caretaker of my youngest brother at 14. And so it was such a tumultuous time for sure. Were you left with a bunch of debt from your parents, all their hospital bills? Did you have their house? Was there a mortgage payment? What happened to all the aftermath and all of that? Yeah. I mean, gosh, like I don't even share this. I don't think I've ever shared this on any podcast. So thank you for diving so deeply into this. I, I so appreciate it. Yeah, there was a lot of debt. There there totally was. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I initially went to, went into medicine. People don't really <laughs> I can make a lot of money fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and to also just, I recognize on the other side that there's also a lot of people who you don't even know what happens, how they mm. can't afford care and, and what do you do? I mean, some of the things that I did when I first initially graduated dental school was work for public aid and just, you know, the access to care. I mean, that's a whole different story, but yeah. yeah. Did my parents run out of medical support? For sure. I mean, 
Luckily, my grandmother, she was a social worker. My Lola was a social worker for the state, my mom's mom. And she would actually, she was a caseworker. So she knew the trouble that we were in financially. And she got us on public aid, which is like the food stamps and which is the insurance and which is the stipend because otherwise my dad's bills and my mom's bills were definitely enough to put us out of a house for sure. If someone passes though, do you, are you still, do you still have to pay those bills? Yes. And they can push it onto you. And that was definitely in our case. Yeah. I, I definitely had to grow up so fast in terms of estate lawyers and things like that. We were able to keep our house again, but like there were a lot of things that just weren't thought through. They did the best that they could in terms of thinking through all of the scenarios you know, there was some life insurance stuff that my dad was able to have and my mom was able to have for us. But again, we're, my upbringing growing up is like save, 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 and making sure that you have enough for education, et cetera, et cetera. And so even going into college, I took out all loans or they were scholarships or I applied for extended different scholarships and things. And yeah, it was definitely financially burdensome, but I've, I was always mm-hmm. lucky in getting really amazing jobs to support. Like at one point I was, I had three jobs, you know, I was a tutor at a very, you know, distinct privileged private school that paid really well for a college student. And then I also was, you know, working at that dental office on the weekends. And then I was also, you know, doing some retail work as well, just to put food on the table. And of course, my family stepped in, my aunts, my uncles, family friends, my now, I call them my bonus parents, Bua and Uncle Glenn. And so I don't think I would be where I am without what I like to call my soul support posse, which includes a lot of my family. So when you decided to go to Rome shortly thereafter, you got pushback from your grandmother and your aunt. Why did they push back? And what made you say, fuck it, I'm going to go anyway? In your words, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I said, though. You know, it was that time in my life. I think I was just done. I was so fed up with where I was and being 19 and having to go through all of these things. I was just done. I I wanted to live a normal life. I, I mean, there was a dream of mine to go away to college and I never could fulfill that dream because that's senior year of high school is when my brother passed away and I had to stay home and take care of my my family. And so I ended up going to Loyola University in Chicago, which was a 10-minute walking distance from my house. So that's where that was. But I saw it was kind of like the universe kind of stepping in again, where there was this, you know, at one of the bulletin boards and like the social hall at the university, it's like study abroad, Rome. And I'm like, oh yes, get me the F out of here. And I just knew like my heart was like, yes, do it, apply, do whatever you need to do. And I applied, I like, you know, I I did all of the, you know, I got the scholarship to go. I like said, here, I just got in and I need to go. I need to do it for school, do it for dental school. And I remember my grandmother, my mom's mom and my dad's sister, these were the the two matriarchs. 
they were like, absolutely not. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, how can you leave your brother? Like, this is not responsible. You know, your dad just died. What are people going to think? Oh my God, you can't go. And I said, no, I have to go. And so it was just one of those things where I was not going to take no for an answer. I needed, my soul needed to leave. And oof, yeah, when I got to Rome, that eight or nine hour flight from Chicago to Rome. And I stepped and I did not know a lick of Italian. I didn't even know anybody in this program, by the way. It was like mm -hmm. all brand new peeps, you know, and if you've ever been to Rome in the summer, it's like a hub for young people to go study abroad. I mean, that's what you do. And I, I obviously didn't know that back then, but you're with so many people from around the world. And mm -hmm. that just blew my mind. I'm like, this is what studying abroad is like. I can forget everything that I have ever gone through and I can just totally recreate, like create a new identity here. And I'm like, like, it just felt like a ton of bricks, just like relieved off of my shoulders. And just, I felt light. I felt like, oh, wow, this darkness is not here. It's not following me. And just like the same routine, the same things like over and over again for that Literally, it was like a decade of my life and, the, and my most formative years. And I'm getting into, you know, now um, this was the the summer of my 20th birthday and being in Rome, boy, that like forever would change my life to this day, forever. Rome has such a, Italy has such a beautiful place in my heart simply because of those two months there. In the interest of time, we have to flash forward <laughs> to you practicing cosmetic dentistry. You're married. You kind of rebuilt your life. You're successful on paper, but it's not all what it seems. Yeah. I used my 20s to really prove myself. And it started in Rome. It started in Rome where I could create whatever I want. Cause I ended up there and I could share mm -hmm. whatever I choose to share in order to be accepted, in order to not be the weird one, in order to not be the, the weird girl that has all of this drama in her life. You know, these were the, these were the kind of beliefs that I had in my head or the stories that I had in my head. So very pivotal point in my life, December 31st, 2011, where I thought I had done such a good job of convincing to the outside world that I had made it, that I had this very lucrative practice. It was a seven-figure business. I wasn't even 30. I had 10 people working under me. It was all of the ego, the bells and whistles. Every single check mark was, you know, box was checked off for me proverbially. And I found myself in, you know, I was married. I had this big dream wedding. I fell in love. And I thought that all of those things were going to mask uh, what I was really feeling. And, and, and it didn't because I was literally in a toxic relationship. I was in an abusive marriage. And December 31st was literally the day that I actually admitted to myself because I was in such denial, such denial to my family, such denial to my friends, and more importantly, such denial to myself because I had been now spiritually broken, mentally just completely off, emotionally distraught. Physically, I was in fear. And so that would then take me through 
the darkest night of the soul of leaving haphazardly in the middle of the night. This was New Year's Eve, 2011. And take whatever I could and literally say goodbye to that life. You were staring in this mirror and looking at all your stuff that you'd accumulated and all that. But what preceded that night? Because you also mentioned being in court and having your file was like stapled together because there's so many instances of physical abuse. Did something happen? Was there like a... Yeah. Uh, yeah, was, was there abuse that happened just before you decided this is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the cherry on top. It was the last time I would allow him to strike his fist across my face. Did it ever leave marks or how did you, were you wearing a lot of makeup when you went to work? Did people uh, notice at work? So did everybody know, but you didn't realize that everybody knew. I think that if you had met us, you'd probably know. Just in, mm-hmm. again, I think hurt people hurt people and and I'm not going to, you know, speak on, you know, my ex's behalf. Right. But it, it's your quintessential codependent relationship where it's like the narcissistic and the codependent, perhaps maybe, you know, sociopathic, but I really wanted love, you know, and I was willing mm-hmm. to do whatever it took to get that and to be in a relationship where they weren't going to leave me, but it would definitely mm-hmm. break me because I would then be so afraid to leave because then the emotional conditioning was you're worthless, you're broken, you're never going to find anyone. And and so I empathize with well, everyone else had left you, you know, everyone you yeah. cared about, it left you at that point. So this is one thing you're holding on to. So you're ho- holding on to it for dear life. And I, I remember even in my therapist's office, just like full hysterics and saying, but I, I don't know what else to do. And I remember, you know, him saying, wow, Nita, just look at where you have come and you can create a whole new life for yourself. And I would still make excuses because I was in, you know, the suck. I was fully in it. And that's where I have so much empathy for women who feel like they have to be, they're stuck in it. And I think that's where it comes. There's that rock bottom. And I definitely that was the rock bottom because my life was threatened. I mean, you know, he threatened to end my life. And when that happened, I'm like, okay, this is serious. We're not kidding around anymore. And who am I kidding? And so there I am, you know, in this five-story home where I thought everything led to all this success, but I was so broken on the inside and so ashamed of like what people would think. So ashamed that like, ah, you know, she couldn't keep this marriage because that was the mentality I grew up in. And God, did it feel so good to leave. But yeah, the first few days, the first few initial weeks, whew, that was that was dark. It got messy. It got so dark. You know, I don't even talk a lot about the details anymore. But, you know, everything that you can ever imagine in a tumultuous divorce, you know, came out from me getting a restraining order, standing before the judge. And I remember the judge putting her glasses down and, and being like, what, what took you so long, honey? And I remember shaking because I was so afraid at that point of public speaking because I was not the only person in the courtroom. <laughs> there was a whole line of other women. Some of them had tiny little kids and I'm like shaking because I'm so afraid of what the world would think. But man, after those words left my mouth, it was like, again, full liberation, full liberation mm-hmm. and full just empowerment and agency and, you know, starting to cultivate that resiliency Mm -hmm. that I talk about in the book. 
if someone had stopped you going into court that day and said, hey, Nita, you're going to one day become a huge wellness influencer and a leadership coach and entrepreneur. You're going to be giving talks on massive stages and inspiring all these people over the world. Would you have believed them? Oh, no. And you're going to use your story of being abused. You're going to speak very publicly and openly about it. You're going to write books about it. <laughs> you're not going to be shaking anymore like you are right now. You won't be shaking anymore. <laughs> would you have believed them? Would you have thought it would be possible in a million years? No, not in a million years, not in a million years. And I think forever, whoever is listening, or maybe you have a friend going through something like this, that's where the mess can really be the magic. And when we dive into it, when we accept it, it could truly be a lead to your next chapter. And I, I even remember my divorce lawyer, you know, I, it, I was such a hot mess at that time. You know, I felt, <laughs> I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. I went through a lot of betrayal, even in my dental office and things, like I said, were really dark for a while. And she said, Nita, I'm going to talk to you in five years and you are going to be a whole different person. And I still remember those Mm. words. And it was Mm. crazy because, you know, five years later, I'm sending her all of these people because people are coming up to me asking me, like, who do I go to for my divorce? And it's just so interesting that like, wow, yeah, it's true. It's true. You went through this period of saying yes to everything. What happened? Did you read the surrender experiment or how did oh. you get this idea to just say yes? And, and you ended up in this improv class and talk about that period. Oh man. I think I needed, I was in such a rock bottom state, like zero confidence, just really in fear. And I, I totally had mm. PTSD that I had to recreate a, you know, a whole community that I had left like whole friend circle. And and I think, you know, now you should know that I'm like, I thrive in community. And for me to walk away from that life and all of those people, and I needed to do something completely different. And I didn't know what it was, but I definitely dove into all kinds of things. And improv and stand-up comedy were like my saving grace. And I remember my, uh, you know, one of my friends was saying, Hey, you know, like there's this thing, you should totally go to it. And and I said, well, where is it at? And they're like, well, it's at second city. And I'm like, second city, that's where people go where they want to like be, you know, it's Saturday night live. Saturday night live. Yeah. Like that's not me literally like the greats go there. Right. And so I'm like, cause it was in Chicago and and they're like, come on, I think it'd be good for you. I think you just try it out. Just try one. And I remember I was also reading The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer. And that was like on repeat in my life during that time. One of my favorite, favorite books still all time. I just, I feel like he's such a godsend, but he, you know, him, of course, The Surrender Experiment was was part of that. You know, Shonda Rhimes, Year of Yes, like all of those books were just, you know, so pivotal during that time. And it was almost just like, okay, fine. If it scares you, then then just say yes to it. Just do it. Because I was just on a mission to find people that were just so different than what suckiness that I was in at that time. And so I did the improv. I said yes to a Bible study group, like, you know, like hardcore, <laughs> the non-denominational Christian group. And I still, I'm so thankful for that community for the longest time. But then I became the leader of that small group. And then we started talking about all sorts of things. And then that turned into like starting a book club. 
which then that turned into, you know, uh, uh, what we would call today, like a, a female mastermind, because again, I was looking for community. And as my human design is a generator, I just needed to generate like these different kinds of opportunities for myself. And, and that meant saying yes to even, you know, psychedelic experiences and yes to different kinds of shamans. Yes to alternative modes of healing. Yes to thought talk therapy. Yes to just saying yes. What I was saying no to was male relationships at the time. You know, that part of my life was definitely closed for a while until I was able to open up myself to love again. But I think I really needed to do the work for myself. And that meant looking at, I remember, oh gosh, one of the books that I read, because I definitely went into the whole narcissistic, codependent relationships. And there was a mm-hmm ton of books that I was just, I was getting my PhD in that whole field at that time because I was just obsessed with, okay, how was I codependent? What were some of my characteristics? Why did I want that? And so it was like massive self-growth and and massive reading. I just became voracious at consuming to literally get out of this time. And one of the greatest things that I still keep today is, you know, the time at stand-up comedy, because that again, legit scared me. Like, I'm like, there's no way, like, how can you create a joke out of a one line? And it just required so much energy and so much thoughtfulness and specificity. And I, and I, you know, of course me as a recovering perfectionist, I'm like, well, what if they don't laugh at my jokes? And so saying yes to that just like blew my mind away where then, you know, I, I entered a pitch competition. I got into this VC realm of venture capitalists and they were actually putting on an incubator. And I said I would be an angel investor because they needed women who were also small business owners to advise some of these females who were talking about their startups. And so I'm like, okay, what's a startup? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what that was. And, and they're kind of like, well, you have a startup. You started your, your dental practice. And I'm like, yeah. So I sat through one of these and that's like, again, blew me to another level because in each of these instances, I was the small fish. I didn't want to be, you know, on Saturday Night Live. I didn't care to be a stand up comedian. I didn't care to be a VC. I was not pitching to get money for a startup. You know, I was just there just saying yes to these opportunities. And, and what it started to happen was I started to say yes to some of the things that I really was passionate about, which was women and girls. And so then I started a nonprofit. And then that led me to San Francisco and going to the Bay Area and and learning from people at the Stanford Business School because they then ran, you know, the nonprofit management school because they're teaching these nonprofits how to make money as well. And so that blew myself away because I'm like, wow, in medicine and in dentistry, no one's talking about this. No one's talking about failing first. We're all talking about how to be perfect and how to be lauded by the accomplishments that we've had. And it's very egoistic in that community where then you go into the startup community and they're like, yeah, I want you to fail. I'm not going to give you money until like, I see you have like some sweat equity, some grit. And that then changed my life because then 
as I was starting to gain momentum in my nonprofit and, you know, it was, it was very small. It, it ended up being, you know, something very national and local uh, to these universities, but it really got my foot in the door being around really big giants and Titans who was actually saving the water crisis and climate change. And, and then I realized like, Oh, wow. Okay. You know, this is my little tiny little effort here, but I can actually learn from some of these people who are really doing major things in the world. And once they got to know kind of the resiliency and the emotional grit at the time that I was starting to cultivate and talk about as one of my talking pieces for the nonprofit as well, that's what would start my speaking career. And that's what would really start my advisory into the world of startups and angel investing and and then actually making the hard decision to sell my dental practice and move mm-hmm. to the Bay Area. Internally, what was your mental state like? You've done all this work, right? And you've been exposed to this whole, whole of the world. Did that help to cure the anxiety or whatever you felt or the PTSD that you had been carrying around since you were 16 years old? So I think it transmuted and it transformed into, oh, wow, okay, there's something bigger than this. Because every time that I would share you know, my story, whether it was at a high school and many times, you know, the speaking was at high schools or different organizations. And this was before it became these corporate events, knowing that other people felt solace in hearing my story. It like gave more fuel to, all right, this is what we're doing. And it also just activated more of like, okay, I need to do more research on this. Like I need to, I need to do more research as to, why we are suffering, you know, in our mental health, why in my dental world, our practice was growing at an exponential rate, 20, 30%. And I wasn't even there. My leadership completely changed. So many things completely changed when I started to like, just expand. And one of the concepts that I talk about in the book is, you know, really tap into your bounce factor. But it wasn't until that I was making peace with one of the pillars, which is your upbringing. And for me, making peace with my upbringing and really loving the fact that, hey, all of these things happened for me was a huge Mm -hmm. perspective shift and allowing myself to, you know, get that support. Because that second pillar of building your bounce factor is how are you invoking, you know, good stress and how are you surrounding yourself and looking at your current environment right now? And is it actually supporting you? And one of the things that I knew I needed constantly was advisors, advisors, mentors, coaches, healers, people that, you know, would take me to that next level in my thinking, in the way that I operated, in the way that I was healing. And I honestly prioritized healing because, you know, for a whole decade before that, I didn't even know. I I had no idea. I became such a wellness and health geek, obviously, because I went through all those losses. And, And I also think that I became really obsessed with alternative modes of healing. And that's where it literally took me around the world.
let's talk about the book. I mean, you've got, you have so many great stories. I wanted to talk about your next marriage and all that, which is what the one you're in right now and your beautiful kids and the birth stories. But oh, yeah. you ended up writing this book that sucked. Now what? And obviously anyone who's heard this interview up to this point can understand <laughs> how you, how you coin that phrase, right? Based on your own life experiences. So for the listener, how do you define a moment of suck? Let's say your parents haven't died and all that, but how do you know you're in a moment of suck? Oh, yeah. Well, something that you had thought that was going to go your way didn't. Maybe it was a breakup. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a slight from your friend or a ghost from somebody that you thought that you were going to go on a date with and they ghosted you. Maybe the babysitter ghosted you. <laughs> Maybe the babysitter ghosted because that because that's definitely happened to me many times. Maybe the fact that you know you needed somebody to cover for you and they didn't show up, or they betrayed you. They were talking behind your back, and you found out, or you got a, a notice in the mail that you had to pay an extra few thousand dollars in your tax bill and you don't actually have the money because you had to use it to cover your parents' roof or or whatever the case is. It's something that completely caught you off guard that was unexpected. A breakup, a loss, a betrayal from a friend, a slight from a friend, maybe even something that you worked so hard on like a promotion or a gig and you were, you know, the next contender and they picked somebody else. These are all moments of suck. We've all experienced these. And typically the response is, let me react to it. Let me feel victimized by it. Let me do the woe is me thing. So what are you offering as alternatives to stay empowered when you're experiencing a moment of suck? Embrace it. Embrace the suck. How do you do that? Like realistically, how do you embrace the suck? Yeah. Well, first, I think it's so easy as humans. Like, what do we want to do? What's the thing that we want to do? We want to bury. We want to distract. We want to escape the suck. We want to avoid that discomfort of the feeling. And so we pick up our phone, we swipe left, we swipe right, we go on IG, we check our email, we turn on the TV, we Netflix and chill, you know, we go to the cupboard, we get the ice cream out, the chocolate, the wine, the mushrooms, all of the things. And escapism is is such a real thing and we're good at it. We're really good at escaping. And what I'm asking you to do is to lean into the sock, lean into that discomfort. And how do you do that? Well, one of the first ways to do that is actually honor the moment. And the only way to do that is to, when something happens, it's our immediate reaction to change, shift, bury, and numb. But I want you to say, okay, well, that sucked. Now what? That sucked. And even just saying that mantra, I'm giving you an anchor to actually shift and acknowledge, because I'm not saying this sucks. I'm saying that sucked because we're giving reverence to the thing that happened that we can't control, that it actually happened. And yeah, it was big. We're honoring it. We're accepting our reality. And our reality, you can't change. We can only accept. But in that moment, you're actually, that sucked is your mantra. You're you're saying, shit, that's big. I can't deny it. I can't deny my humanity and I have feelings around it. So what do we do next? Well, t- number two, we identify our emotion. Okay, well, how do we do that? 
well, see what is coming up. What is rising to the top? Are your fists getting clenched or maybe you start to clench your jaws or you have like tension headaches that you notice, or maybe your stomach is in knots. But these are ways where we tend to bury and we're like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm actually really good right now, but you're clenching your, your, your fists. You're just lying to nobody, you know, but yourself to feel that, to allow it, to, to allow it. And I think some of us or most of us, we're afraid of being stuck in the suck. We're afraid that if we do allow ourselves to feel that anxiety, to feel that overwhelm, to feel that jealousy, the rage, the discomfort that we're going to get stuck in it, we're going to get swept away in it. So what's the worst case scenario that can happen if you're stuck in it? Because I've got tons of tools to help you get out, to fly forward. And one of the things for people who aren't comfortable in doing this kind of work is you can set a timer. You can mm -hmm. actually say, all right, I'm going to set a timer for 30 seconds and I'm going to whine and I'm going to bitch and I'm going to say like, I can't believe I didn't get this thing. I didn't get this opportunity. Set your whining timer, you know, have your pity party of one for that minute to feel and allow and process and state out loud. Many times we have like a, you know, it's like the pressure cooker and that pressure is like building up and that's where we're like tense. But if we're allowing ourselves to express and really opening our vocal cords, you know, that vagus nerve runs from our head to our toes. And if we're able to, you know, say out loud, even opening up our vocal cords in a scream, in a moan, and maybe singing, chanting even to allow ourselves to center our nervous system. And that's kind of what we want to do. But in order to center it, we've got to, you know, kind of release it. And some of you might might like the five step process that I actually talk about. You know, I'm, I'm talking about it in, you know, three steps right now. Some of you might say, well, actually, no, walking outside works for me or grounding in my closet where my kids can't find me for two minutes before I, you know, start screaming at them. Well, I can tune in. That's perfect too. But it's your way of emotionally regulating that feels good. But I would definitely suggest yeah, notice where that feeling is coming. First, take a deep breath, put your hand over your heart. Like we can actually do this. We can be that embrace from a caretaker, you know, coming back from school at five or six when we wanted the embrace of our loved one. Well, as an adult, you could actually do that. When you're putting your hand to your heart, that's signaling your rest and digest system to say, okay, I got this. There's that mind-body connection where we're not ruminating in our thoughts. We're bringing it back to our body. What about the now what part? Like, what do you do next? Let's say you, you've, you sat in it, you've acknowledged it. Now, now what? The now what can look so different. The now what can be the reality that you create, right? The now what can be completely different, completely imperfect, then that sucked. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, even in my cover, it's depicted so differently. It's to give you the permission to suck, especially if you're doing something completely new, completely scary, completely different than you normally would. The now what can be something completely bold and just giving yourself permission to go in a different direction than you normally would. 
And in the book, you know, part three of the book is all dedicated to building, you know, flying forward past the sucky moments so that you're not stuck in the suck, that we can climb out of the suck and actually fly forward. And some of the strategies that I talk about when you are literally rising out from the suck is it's going to be wobbly. You're going to feel like, oh my gosh, am I doing things right? I'm feeling really open right now because I want to open my heart to love again, but maybe I'm also reserved because the duality of both of those emotions, the conflicting emotions, they coexist and that's normal. But to actually lean into it with curiosity and say, okay, I am going to do this and have compassion for yourself in that stage because you're creating baby steps you're not going to get it right. It's going to be messy and embracing the magic along the way is one of the biggest things that I can recommend. You are a living example of someone who's literally turned her mess into very powerful message. And I'm curious what your thinking is around other people going through certain things. Like, do you think people go through things randomly? Do you think that the things that we go through that suck, we're supposed to use them in some way as our message? Like, should we be looking in that direction when we come out of that sucky phase and start thinking, okay, well, I was in this, I was depressed for whatever, however many years. And should I write about my depression? Like, would that be a good first step to kind of process and and move forward? Or or what's your thinking about that? Absolutely. So, you know, like in Flying Forward, which is part three of the book, you know, we talk about the thriving stage and thriving stage could really look like, how are you alchemizing? How are you kind of integrating all of the lessons in your life? And we all have these adventures. Some of us take those adventures and we you know, those messy moments, it becomes our dharma. It becomes our path to either teach others. Mm -hmm. And we want to do that because it's giving us life and it's giving us juice. Some of us maybe don't want to do that. Maybe we are inspired by it, but maybe we want to give back in a different way. So it could look like, you know, not, you know, quitting your day job, but it could look like maybe finding organizations that you can actually support that have helped you in that way. And, you know, you could do it that way. Some people are thinking like they can mentor the next generation so that they don't have to go through Mm. the same types of things that they did, or maybe they're just doing it within their family so that their lineage can stop the generational trauma from passing through because now they know better. They've done the work and or maybe they're getting checked up even faster and easier because they know that they carry this medical trait or disease that they want to make sure that they're not passing it down to their family. So it could look very different, right? But even in my subtitle, How to Embrace the Magic and the Mess and Find the Joy in Chaos, that's my invitation to everyone listening is that maybe some of these circumstances, if we haven't learned, you know, what the universe, what source, what that next evolution, that next path for ourselves, what we're really having to do in our lives. And if we haven't cultivated that yet, those same lessons may show up in different ways, different circumstances, different setbacks, different challenges until we start to gain the lessons for ourselves. And so I think it is such a beautiful way to encapsulate how we can turn in some of those suckiest moments into magical moments that can really 
be fuel for other people. And most importantly, fuel for our next becoming that next evolution of ourself, the next level in Mario Kart. You know, if we were thinking that this life is is that game, right? It's like that first level is going to be super easy. But as we do the work, as we do that introspection, perhaps, you know, life will throw different kinds of curveballs. And that's that level too. And then when you've kind of gone through all of those hurdles, you're kind of ready for that next evolution again. And it's going to look different. And, you know, in this book, you have a lot of the tools that will not only help you thrive, but it'll also help you when you're falling and going through that stage of falling and embracing that suck moment to actually alchemize even faster into that next part of you. Something else that I think is really powerful about your book is that you give lots and lots of case studies of people who you've worked with and who've gone through a sucky moment. And so you get to see almost from every single angle what different examples of that would be. And just to kind of entice the listener to pick up the book more, if you did a meta-analysis of all your case studies, because you've worked with you know thousands of people at this point, what would you say is the most unexpected outcome of embracing the suck that you've seen people have? Oh yeah. That they're not so hard on themselves anymore. That I think that, you know, if especially when we're coming from backgrounds where we are not allowed to express our voice or we're not allowed to share what's really on our mind or we've been oppressed in some way or we're the people pleasers and we don't Mm. want to get things wrong. Well, now they're kind of on the other side, so unapologetic. And they're so there's this liberation, there's this freedom that comes from embracing the suck. Because then it's this lightness, it's this levity to, and that's why the book is not called Fly Forward. It's called That Sucks, Now What? It's to literally give grace in the human experience. And I think that has been the through line for everybody who has been able to embrace a suck. I mean, from CEOs to everyday moms to everyday humans that are, you know, I think so often we put so much pressure on ourselves. And this is this is that book that allows you to have fun in the process. Do you still find yourself having a little bit of PTSD around your kids? You have two kids now and and your family and the things that you care about? I feel like it's changed now. I I definitely, and I think I talk about this in the book as well, you know, the postpartum depression with both of my kids Mm -hmm. were definitely eye-opening. And they were eye-opening because I know that a lot of moms go into the worry factor. And I went into the worrying phase. I mean, that's, I feel like super normal. As a mom, you want to make sure that they're alive and breathing. But But I think that for me, it was mostly like postpartum rage that came up a lot where I needed to make peace with the anger that I couldn't actually express when I was a teenager, when my dad got his diagnosis, you know, I couldn't express that rage. I had to like suppress it and it just couldn't go anywhere when I couldn't take care of my kids because I'm like healing, you know, and and my mother-in-law is here and matriarchs and my family are around to support me. And I just wanted to like deny everyone's help because 
for the first time, those feelings were coming back. And I'm like, ooh, that feeling felt familiar. And I don't like that, but I can't do anything about it. And so I think it definitely expanded my realm of emotional capacity, which was very different than going through PTSD of loss because it was, wow, I'm taking care of this young person now and I need to really focus in on my own regulation of my emotions and explore what that actually means. And hence, you know, that's why this book was born. How are you defining success these days? You've achieved so much and you have, you know, again, on paper, you have the perfect family and all of that. So how are you measuring that now? Mm. So now I feel like it's basically the relationships that I've been able to Mm -hmm. cultivate. And I think it's one of the reasons why I started podcasting. I never thought I was going to start one. And, you know, a couple years ago, I was in just like the thickness of the pandemic and pregnant and all the things. And because I had started one a long time ago, and I got so burned out by it. And I remember that my husband was like, this is what you do. You love having conversations with people. And we will just have them. And because we're big community builders, so we'd be like, you know, come over and we've, we've said it to you too, you know, come over when you're in LA or whatever. Cause that's just, that's just how we are. We've been able to amass a community throughout the world. And it starts with relationships and friendships in that way. And I think one of the ways to really go deep with somebody is like that one-on-one conversation, which is what we've been able to do in the 90 minutes. But I think that's kind of our, our level of success. I was so thankful this year that we were able to take 16 of our friends to Turkey for a big milestone birthday that I had. And I'm like, wow, we are able to do this. And it just shows that community is just so it's has been literally the through line from, you know, me being 12, 13, 14 years old to even now. Yeah. And I'm so unapologetic in, in cultivating those, those relationships and friendships on a deeper level. Final question for you. Do you miss anything about being a dentist? Oh gosh, no, <laughs> no. It's <laughs> funny when people ask me that, I'm like, no, I I don't. Oh gosh, no. That's no. so interesting. It's yeah. I think, I think dentistry is like one of the most suicidal uh, occupations or something, right? You know what I loved about it? I'll tell you what I loved about it. I, I love the human aspect. I love the intimacy because literally, you know, someone's like, you know, doesn't get more intimate. Well, just, just like right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're close. You're very close. <laughs> and so I loved the intimacy. I loved that sort of connection and, you know, I did cosmetics. And so I think that it really shaped the way that they saw themselves and their external confidence yeah. and if I was able to play a role in that, but really going deeper, what I really loved was the transformation. Right. And so I didn't really care to do the millimeters of the, like, I love the artwork around it, but I loved seeing their face when they would see what they looked in the mirror after something was repaired, or you could see their full smile again, or, or you could see the facial aesthetics being done. And, and that was cool. And I loved building a team and empowering mm-hmm. the team and and doing team things for the community. Again, community builder, right? And I loved getting everybody involved. And it was like such a small town that we were doing this in. It was like the suburbs of Chicago, but 
that was what I loved. And I still do that. You know, it's just a different way. I was going to say that you're doing it. You're still doing it. You know, it's I, a different I, I, way. I say that the yeah. best makeup is your smile and you're still doing that. You're taking people's messy, emotional stuff and life stuff and you're turning it into something that's, that's actually beautiful or helping them to do that. And so just want to acknowledge you for, gosh, man, you, you, you've gone through so much and you're still here and you're still mm-hmm. shining even brighter than ever. And it's an honor to know you and to call you a friend. And I look forward to connecting with you all in person again. Next time I come to your city, we'll definitely connect and, and we'll definitely I'll have come on to dinner. your podcast. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll get you on everyone's podcast when you come out here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being so open and generous in your share. And I look forward to sharing this with my audience. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say like, you're an incredible interviewer, love, like, a lot of the questions. So thank you. Thank you for your intentionality and thank you for your light. That's who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Nita Bushin. For more inspiration, make sure to follow Dr. Nita on the socials. She is at Nita, N-E-E-T-A, and then Bushin is spelled B-H-U-S-H-A-N. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that Dr. Nita and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People like Young Pueblo, Ava DuVernay, Ed Milet, and many more. You can also search these interviews by subject matter in case you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of that at The Light Watkins Show, as well as the video playlist, which you can find on our YouTube channel if you just search Light Watkins Podcast. And last but not least, we also post the unedited version of every podcast inside of my Happiness Insiders online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. For those of you who like to hear all the false starts and the chit chat and the mistakes, because we leave all of that in. And once you get into that community, you'll also have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a really long way if you could take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. All you do is glance down at your device, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past those first seven or eight episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you found this conversation inspiring, click the star all the way on the right. You give us a five-star review. If you want to go the extra mile, you can actually leave a written review about maybe the episode or about how the podcast makes you feel. And that would help new people who are coming to the podcast to see what people say about it. And it also helps guests who I'm trying to bring onto the podcast to see that, oh, people really like this show and they feel very inspired by it. So thank you very much for that. It really does have a huge impact in all ways. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. 
If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.